Are you passionate about making a difference through design? Join us at the Human Centered Design Network's Circle, a new private community for change makers just like you. Connect with like minded professionals, gain exclusive rights to monthly learning opportunities, and lead the change in human centered design. For more information, see thisishcd.com. Now, let's get back into that episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of This Is HCD. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a human-centred design practitioner based in Sydney, Australia. Before we jump in, however, as this podcast was recorded in the Sydney CBD, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians of the land where we meet today and pay respect to their elders both past and present. In this episode, we caught up with Mark Stickdorn, co-author of the This Is Serves Design Thinking book, and most recently the epic and one of the most important Serves Design books in Yonks, This Is Serves Design Doing, a book that has been celebrated in the Serves Design community like it's the millennium. If you aren't familiar with either books, I'll pop links into the show notes for the episode. In this episode, we go through the hypothetical scenario of embedding service design into an organization and what Mark looks for in this process. We discuss the challenges of the early stage engagement of what to look for regarding the design maturity of an organization, where service design should sit in an organizational structure, and the role of service design thinking, impact measurement and service design, and a whole lot more. Now, this episode is tinged with a touch of sadness, as this is the last time I'll be recording in Castlereagh Street in Sydney. And tonight I'll be turning off the lights for the last time. I will be continuing This Is HCD for my new home in Dublin, Ireland, and I want to thank everyone who has helped me do this podcast to date. So thank you to all my Australian guests, our sponsors who've kindly donated to Caracare, our nominated charity in Australia, my wonderful wife, and also to Mark Tanzaridi and Adrian Tan for their help and support. As I mentioned, this isn't the end for This Is HCD in Australia. Mark and Adrian will be continue to record, and I'll be recording from Dublin. But enough about me. Let's get into the call. We've got Mark waiting. Mark Stickdorn, a very warm welcome to the This Is HCD podcast. Good morning, or good afternoon or evening to you. <laughs> You're coming live from Innsbruck in Austria. I'm sure it's snowy there at the moment, is it? It is. It's getting springtime though. We had uh, the first spring day, but it's still a lot of snow out there. It's quite beautiful right now, actually. Right. Unlike Ireland at the moment, which is suffering in uh, four feet of snow for the first time in about 20 years. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so Mark, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into design. Yeah, so I'm in the field of service design for more than 10 years now. But actually, my background is, is not design. My background is uh, strategic tourism management. So strategic management right. in the service industry. And um, I was doing innovation projects, but failing with using this tools I learned in business school. But this rather linear thinking, so kind of write your business plan and then execute for a year or two and then see what comes out of that. And, well, I, I failed doing that. So I, I got interested in other ways of doing innovation basically and a good friend of mine is a designer jacob uh, who i published the first book together with yeah and then i i got interested in design and when i moved to innsbruck about 10 years ago i really got into service design more and more and that's it yeah and um i know that's how i first became aware of uh, mark stickdorn and, and jacob and uh, ultimately klaus as well uh, at some point of this is service design thinking and you've just released This Is Service Design Doing as well, which uh, we've obviously given away one book already uh, on the podcast. It was very popular. So how's the book going so far? Absolutely amazing. So uh, we, were, we were blown away by the interest. Um, the first print run was sold out within three weeks. 
The second one was sold out in another four weeks. So we are already in the third print run now. Wow. So right now, probably 10,000 books have been sold, like physical books, not talking about the digital version. So it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. I can definitely say like I had that book for a couple of weeks and I read through it and it's it's fantastic. It really is. And I'm not just saying that because you're obviously on the podcast now. It's a must have for any anyone practicing the craft of service design or human centered design. So kudos to you and the guys for doing that. Thank you. So let's ask you a little bit of a question. How would you describe service design to your mother? <laughs> I like how you phrase the question because um, <laughs> the first thing I always, always ask when somebody asks me to describe service design, I ask to whom. Yeah. It's, it's not one definition. It depends on who you're talking to, what, what makes sense to them. Yeah. So if I try to explain that to my mother, I probably will talk, um, I try it. Like, so when we do service design, we try to look at the customer experience or the employee experience, whatever you focus on. We look at some kind of experience and what are the mechanics behind it in business to create this experience. And when we try to understand what the customer really needs, and we try to change the processes, the structures, maybe also physical products, architecture, whatever is needed to create a great customer experience while at the same time also improving business for the company. Okay. And what would your mother say to that? Well, pr- probably stop talking and eat your cake. <laughs> I know my mother struggles with it as well. One of my friends still thinks that I do the Aer Lingus logo. He says, like, that's what you do. And I'm like, yeah, sort of, <laughs> sort of, <laughs> almost, someday. So today's topic, we were emailing back and forth about this, and it's a very hot topic at the moment. It's about embedding service design into organizations. And I know you've already done a couple of talks on this, I think, in the US. And one of the things that struck me today as I was writing these questions was, it may seem quite obvious, but I'm keen to understand what exactly it is that we're trying to embed. I think we can learn from other approaches which have gone through similar struggles a few years ago. Um, So if we take a look at uh, software development, for example, they changed from what's called a waterfall model, where you have one big decision in the beginning, where you define the requirements, you define your roadmap, you might do project planning with a gun chart. And they moved into an agile way of doing, where you do a couple of smaller decisions, where you iterate, where you test things on the go. And of course, they were struggling in it, and they're still struggling. 20 years later, they're still struggling to bring this sustainable into an organization. I think we're doing a similar thing, just with um, with a different, maybe with a different scale, because we try at the same time change the way we're working from big decision and linear thinking to more iterations, agile, if you like to say. But at the same time, we try to bridge many different departments of an organization. We try to break down silos. Because if you think of who has a stake in the customer experience, in the service experience, there are many different departments involved. And many of them are actually just backstage departments, departments the customer doesn't have direct contact with, but indirectly, the experience is influenced by decisions they make. Hmm. So what we need to do is we need to somehow work co-creatively, include all these people who are part of both the design process and later on running the show and try to come up with solutions together. And and there are many tags for that, many ways you can call it, from service design or design thinking or human-centered design or UX design if you don't limit yourself to a screen. So I don't care which tag you put on there as long as we all agree on, on what we're trying to achieve. 
which is improving the experience for customers, but also employees. Yeah, okay. And I know before we were speaking, you, you mentioned like, I know you're working full-time more than metrics. Are you still consulting? Well, I do, but rather on a, on a strategic level. So I, I stopped doing projects, real service design project work, uh, more than three years ago, because we had this awkward situation that we were pitching against one of our modern metric clients <laughs> by using our software, which was a real horrible experience. So we said we yeah, stop that. We really position ourselves behind the people who are actually doing service design, so behind agencies, consultancies, in-house departments, and rather focus on developing tools and methods which makes your life easier. Okay, so um, well, one of the questions that I have for you is, how does embedding service design differ to, say, embedding design thinking? You touched on a little bit there about um, removing the labels and focusing more on the, the skills and the roles of what people are doing. But um, in my experience with design thinking, it focuses less about the doing and more about the thinking. So what are your thoughts on that? I think it depends on um, what kind of design thinking approach or definition you follow. Mm. Um, so there are so many out there. And one big issue I have with uh, design thinking is that it's, um, especially in, in the world of management consulting, it's often limited to an ideation method using post-its. Yeah. And honestly, ideation is the smallest bit in a, in a design process. It's more about doing research and, and prototyping. These are the two main fields for me. And less about, well, using poses to come up with ideas. Because if you involve the right people, ideas would come out anyway. The question is rather which of these many, many ideas you want to take forward and less about, well, throwing poses at a wall and ideating. I remember when we were speaking a couple of years ago about when you'd released the service design thinking book, or maybe it was Klaus that had said this to me, but uh, you were kind of shooting yourselves in the foot by giving a, a, another tag and another title out there, like service design thinking is now design thinking on steroids and, and stuff. Yes, it's horrible. It's <laughs> horrible. And I'm, I'm, honestly, I'm really, really sorry for that mess. Because what, what we try to achieve with this title, this is service design thinking, is we wanted to raise a discussion in the community. And when we created this book, we really thought that this becomes a textbook that we were thinking about maybe a few hundred people read and use in their classes. And that the title actually steers the discussion on, well, is this service design or is this design thinking? Or yeah. what's the difference, by the way? And, and why is it service design thinking? And it completely failed. Nobody was discussing that. Instead, we now have agencies for service design thinking and departments for service design thinking. <laughs> and instead of raising a discussion and, and clearing the field, actually what came out of that was the opposite. It's an even bigger mess. So I'm sorry for that. <laughs> There's no, no reason to apologize and definitely not to me. But is this where the, the service design doing book came out of, of that problem, so to speak? So the story about the doing book is more that I started giving what we call executive uh, schools together with uh, two German friends of mine, or one German, one English living in Germany now, which are Marcus and Adam. Many of you are familiar with the Global Service Jam. These are the two guys behind it. Yeah. Uh, so we initially started it. And we started teaching together. And over the years, so we're teaching now together for more than five years. And over the years, we created a script, we tried a clear language, we thought, and we were always staggering, like, 
that we as a community, even within the core community of service design experts, we don't have a clear language yet. And that was the main idea of why we should bring this out in a book, to maybe not restricting the approach by, by giving it a clear definition, but maybe by bringing a bit of more clarity in it by unifying the language. Okay, yeah, and, and you've definitely done that in, in the book. I can testify it's, it's a fantastic... Um, it's a fantastic prop, you know, for, for anyone who, who's actually working uh, on the tools, shall we say. Um, Thank you. But enough of that. Enough, enough about of the, the book. book. Let's get down into the nitty gritty of, <laughs> of what we're going to discuss today is about embedding service design into an organization. Now, this is a hot topic because I've made a few phone calls in the last 24 hours to, to people uh, across Australia and beyond. And um, a lot of people are, I've got a lot of questions. So um, I've broken the questions and the structures of today's conversation down into three stages. One of them is like if a client has approached you or has approached an agency, say, because we're looking for your perspective on that and we realize and we've identified you're not consulting at the moment. But if there's a stage of awareness, so the client has maybe read something, they've heard something, maybe they've watched something, they've met Jerry in the street and I've been banging on about service design. How would you gauge the design maturity of an organization and the readiness to adopt? The first thing I, I always like to understand is what they actually mean with certain terms. And, and if an organization says we do service design, they might do exactly the same thing as another organization who says who does design thinking or human-centered design or even UX design or whatever. Mm. So first, I would like to look beyond the labels they put on and really understand, okay, how do you work? And then check on who is doing the work. Is it more external agencies or are they having a team in-house driving it? And with, with driving, I mean, really, who's facilitating the workshops there? And what is their level of, of facilitation? And who should be working on the, the facilitation of the workshops? What would you be looking to see? Like, what does a good outcome look like? So a healthy approach is if it's a mix. You need to have a strong in-house team who can facilitate workshops themselves, who can manage the projects themselves. And if you're working with a good in-house team, they also know what are their limitations and when it makes sense to reach out to an external agency for either facilitation, so that if, if anybody in an organization is, is focusing too much on the content, that's always a point where you need an external facilitator, or if you need different expertise in it. So what I try to understand when I check the maturity of an organization, I take a look at uh, the tools they use. So with, with tools, I mean stuff like personas, system maps, journey maps, and so on. Methods is rather how you create these tools and how you keep on working with the tools. So I take a look at, at the tools first and try to see what is the quality of that. Do they, if they create, for example, a current state journey map, an as-is journey map, do they base it on research or is it just based on assumptions of them? And if it's based on research, do they actually add on some research on it, some verbal teams to it, and maybe even state what kind of research they've done? So others who take a look at the map can evaluate it and, and see how, how valid it actually is. Okay. So, um, Mark, I'm really keen to understand a little bit more about your thoughts on where an in-house team should sit in an organization. So what I mean by that is if there's people listening today and they're in, uh, in the business function and they, they want to 
do service design, they want to bring it in-house. Where do you think it should sit in the organization and what other teams should be involved to make that a successful embedding process? It sounds actually like a, like a straightforward question, but actually it tackles on many different aspects. And, and one of them actually is what is service design? Is service design a new discipline which needs its own department? For me, what service design is, it's something bridging different disciplines. We try to work co-creatively, interdisciplinary, so getting all the different departments together. And at the same time, we're talking about breaking down silos. So can we then create an own department for service design, so just another silo in it? When you ask me what is service design, I think it is actually a common language we can use, a common language based on rather simple tools that everybody can use no matter what the background is, based on an iterative design process, and based on a common understanding that we always start working from the perspective of the people we're working for, so be it users, customers, or employees. In order to do that, you need to have, I always like to call it two different teams. You have a core team, so these are the people who are rather experts on the service design process, on the tools, on the methods, but mostly on facilitating that. Mm-hmm. So they are our facilitators. And they often do not interfere in the content. They only make sure that a group of people makes progress in a project. And then you have an extended project team, and these teams can uh, change, or they should actually change from project to project, because different projects focus on different aspects, so you need a different mix of people, everybody who's involved in that. So you have these core teams, and, and of course they need to, to sit somewhere in organization. And I see them sitting in, in the design field, in the marketing field, in the business development field, in the more op- operational organization field. I don't think there's a right or wrong as long as we understand that these are the core people who are driving it. But per project, you need to set up a different team. And per project, you need to set up a team from people who have a basic knowledge of that. So training is essential there, of course. I, however, criticize when when an organization says, well, we need to train 10,000 design thinkers in our organizations because how many of them in the end will really work with that? Does it make sense? No. Not everybody in the organization needs to be a service designer. But it helps if you have a common language and if those who work in projects understand that. And of course, the more projects you participated in, the better your skills get and the easier it is to work and the less facilitations that you need. So if you have a really well-skilled team, they can start working straight away. That totally makes sense, Mark. And, you know, I've definitely seen that in, in my experience as well. And I really liked the splitting of the teams, like the core teams. You actually focus on the facilitation to enable the doing, almost, to, to clear those hurdles. Do you think they should be just designers themselves? Like, or, or is that a management function, a traditional management function, should I say? I actually think what service design develops into, ultimately, in, in a couple, or I would say many years, is actually a management approach. But that's still a long way to go. So who should be a service designer? I say have a diverse background. I mean, I'm, mm. I'm not a designer by, by classic education. I then went into design during my PhD, but I started being a strategic management. I work with people in service design who have a background in psychology, 
or in, in ethnography, so in research, but of course also design. And I think it's more about the mindset than about the education bit. Because if you limit it to education, I don't believe that much into the silos of education. It's, on the other hand, that would mean that only people who have a management education are, are good managers. Yeah. That's not true. That's not true at all. Yeah, absolutely. So in this hypothetical scenario um, of like the first stage of, of people, you know, being aware of, of service design and you've gauged their maturity and, you know, you've helped them understand what service design is, how do you give them sort of uh, an understanding of the impact? So that's one of the problems I know with service design is, is being able to sell service design into organizations and impact measurement. So what are your, what are your thoughts on that? It's really, really hard to sell service design with case studies outside of your own organization. So if you come up with, with all these fancy cases out there, people will always say, yeah, that works there, but we are different. And, and that's true. I mean, if, if we talk about cultural differences, it's not only regional culture differences. It, there is a culture in every organization. And in large organizations, actually, there are several cultures depending on which department you're looking at. So you need to prove that service design works inside of your organization, inside of your culture, with your given structures and processes. So how can you do that? You, you start with small projects. We, we like to call them stealth projects. Because Ooh, stealth projects. Be yeah, stealth projects, which means you give them often a very boring name, something like process optimization or, or whatever, where, where people don't <laughs> question like, okay, that's important. Somebody needs to do that. I don't want to be that somebody. But you use these, these stealth projects to sneak service design into an organization. So you're using the tools and methods. And it's not a switch like from, from zero to 100% immediately. Mm. It's a gradual switch because you need to learn to adapt methods, tools, a process, the language you're using to your own organization first. And that needs a couple of small projects. But once you, you find the mix, how it stacks in your organization, you can work, start working on smaller projects. And it's really important to document these projects well. That means make clear what do you want to change in the beginning? Where do you want to have an impact? Measure the baseline of that. So find some KPIs where you can really measure the impact of that. That could be something like, like revenue, for example, or churn or, or costs, but that could be also something like uh, customer, user, employee experience or the length of a process, whatever that is. So you need to measure the baseline. You document your project using photos, little videos, quotes from participants, quotes from users or customers you involved into that. And then also doing prototyping, you start measuring again, and that helps you to indicate, well, could we have an impact on that? Once it's implemented, uh, you measure the new baseline, then hopefully you see a difference in that. And hopefully you get the impact you intended to. Once you have that, so you know what is the impact and you know how much work went into this project, you can actually answer the golden question everybody's asking for. What is the return of investment? Mm -hmm. How much is it cost and what do I get out of that? You cannot answer that in general for service design. I mean, you can't answer that for, for management or marketing in general, right? What is the return of investment on management? Mm -hmm. I don't know. But you can do it for any specific project you do. So start with small styles projects 
learn how to adapt this into your organization, measure the impact of that, and then you can create and craft a nice case out of that where you have a documentation of how you worked because that is really important, but then also having a documentation on the effect of that. Well, you touched on a little bit there um, on culture and organizational culture. And much of the work that I've done over the last uh, 10 or 15 years, and not all of that's been as a service designer, but um, when you get down into the, the nuts and bolts of a project and you start looking at the backstage inefficiencies and you start to help resolve those issues to enable an organization to be able to deliver the desired experience for the customer, you start to encroach in this kind of uh, savanna area of an organization where you start looking at organizational culture and corporate behavior. So what is the role of the service designer in this instance? And what are the areas that you think we start to become ineffective? There's a lot of fuzziness around, okay, what what is it actually when you embed service design into an organization? And often it's underestimated what you impact there because what it actually is, it's cultural change within an organization. It changes the way people work. Because currently, if we look at organizations, many of them are still set up in silos, which means every silo has a certain language, a certain culture, often also a certain set of KPIs they're measured against. So they have performance reviews on different KPIs, which means in any interdisciplinary project, the different people from different organizations have certain hidden intentions there, hidden agendas. They want to drive their own KPIs. Mm -hmm. So... How can you, as a service designer who comes into an organization and and tries to maybe not break down these silos, but lowers the hurdles between them, how can you have an impact on that? And I think it's not easy. The thing is, all these tools we use, they appear so simple and so straightforward, like a journey map. Yes, we can do that, of course. Yeah, true. But actually, when you when it comes into sustainably embedding this way of working on in an organization, it's not a sprint; it's a marathon, and it's a damn hard marathon. It takes years to bring it really into an organization and to change the way people work and people think. So you can only do that uh, step by step. You need to identify who are the champions in an organization who who really understand this way of working, who have an intrinsic motivations to work in this kind of way. So often doing doing something like an internal jam can be great to, just to identify of who in this organization is willing to change and willing to work in this way. Or maybe they're even working in this way already. They're just calling it differently. And once you identified a few champions there, then you can start doing the first project, those stealth projects I was talking about. And as soon as you start having successful uh, projects in your organizations, no matter which field it is, if it's customer experience, user experience, employee experience, then you can slowly start communicating that. And it's important to not try to push this approach in the organization, but rather raise interest in those people who, who have an intrinsic interest in that and change it into a pull. So slowly start communicating. For example, hang up the current state journey map, a future state journey map, show what is the difference you want to change, and then also show with maybe a few post, uh, photos on a poster how you did it and hang it up in the hallway. Maybe add some information on, on the effect of that. So what did you change? What was the impact of that? How long did it take? But also show the way you're working. And then 
at somewhere an information like, do you want more information? Get in touch with the person who's doing that. So you're changing the push into a pull and people will start calling you and saying, hey, this looks great. Can we do something similar here as well? So instead of pushing it too hard, rather have it, well, an organic growth in your organization, step by step. Yeah. By proving that this is working. And also including not only those those people who are always front stage, but also focusing on the backstage people. So think about IT department, think about legal, think about human resources. Those are the real change drivers in an organization. If you get all of them, you probably have a good chance to bring it into the entire organization. Yeah, excellent. So um, have, you, have you seen any tactics that have worked quite well as regards um, the sharing of information across the organizations that you've worked with in the past? It depends on the on the maturity level. So where are we right now? Are we already using certain labels for that, like service design? Is uh, Do you have management buy-in for that? Or is it maybe still stuck in somewhere in the, in the organizational hierarchy? In the beginning, I would, I would choose very subtle communication forms. So hanging up a journey map somewhere, for example, or maybe including that in, in internal presentations where you talk about that. Over time, you can then include more and more external people to that as well. So learning from other cases or getting master classes in for, for certain tools or methods. And at some point you realize that more and more people are using this terminology. And to sustainably embed it, you need people who are doing that, the internal champions, but you also need management buy-in who gives you the budget to that. Because in the end, budget is how organizations express their love. And <laughs> if there's no budget for something, there's no love for it. Yeah. As soon as there's budget, with budget, I not only mean financial budget, the most important budget we have in an organization is time. Yeah. How much time do people have, especially in the extended project team, to work and focus on this way of working? If you have both, then probably you can start communicating that more widely. So including that into a larger internal presentations. I see organizations who started to have a competition, for example. They have their service design award or customer experience award where different projects can apply to that. And um and you start applying to, to external awards and, and get some, some focus on that. So it becomes part of the external communication even. And as soon as you do that, probably you reach a maturity level where you can talk big scale about that and really put it in the agenda. All right, excellent. So just I want to touch on one of the, the topics that you, you hinted at there was the organizational culture. And from interviewing Jay Hasbrook uh, on ethnographic thinking, we're looking at organizational behaviors. Have you worked in the past with ethnographic um, researchers to help understand organization and their culture? Absolutely, yes. And and actually, that is the field of my PhD is ethnography. <laughs> I know. So, <laughs> I've done my I research. <laughs> I think it's absolutely fantastic to get these deep insights there, and it's it's necessary. So when when service designers talk about let's do ethnography, it's actually not real ethnography. It's, it's more ethnographically inspired research methods. Because if you really do ethnography, that means you spend a lot of time on a, on a very specific subject. Yeah, absolutely. But it's good enough 
for what we're doing to use this, let's call it ethnographic methods. Yeah. So doing stuff like contextual interviews and basically doing any kind of research in context through observations, different kind of observations, interviews, mobile ethnography, and so on and so forth. So yes, basically, if you ask me what are the two main important things of service design, it's, it's research and prototyping. What is the most important? It's research. So understanding the needs is an absolute crucial thing. Yeah, and absolutely. And I know um, I've got a question. I'm going I'm to weave into this area like a professional. But a month ago, we did a, a newsletter giveaway for This is Service Design doing the book. And we had a great response. And Amy in Boston won that book. She's at the agency Mad Pow. And her question was, how do we weave behavior change science into service design? You sort of touched on it there a little bit more, but is there anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah, it's, it's a big field. The thing is, you can't be an expert in everything, right? And even though I, I say that service design is actually change management, and it is behavior change into an organization, I am not an expert on that. Even though I've done it a couple of times now, and, and I know basic theories of that, I'm not an expert. But there hmm. are experts out there. So yes, you can weave it in. Maybe one little example is during prototyping, I saw many projects fail because they prototyped it only in one instance, let's say in, in one shop. But then the project failed as soon as you try to roll it out across different shops or different hospitals or different whatever. And the problem there is that we often then neglect or we have a tendency to neglect all the knowledge out there about how you change how you actually roll it out across an organization. Because as long as you work face-to-face with a group of people, it's easy to convince them that it is a useful thing, whatever you're doing. As soon as you roll it out on a larger scale, you will not be there to tell people how great this is. So how can you convince them? And then you fall into the classic trap of, of behavioral change. And people will hate you just for adding another another thing to their workload. And they don't understand why they need it. So the term of running a pilot, which is to me, a pilot is to me, the prototyping of the rollout is really crucial and something we need to include into our, our prototyping as well. And for that, we need experts. So I wouldn't call myself an expert. I get people in who are experts in change management. And there are some people out there actually who worked in change management for years and they were fed up with implementing bad projects, bad <laughs> concepts, whatever that is. So they rather moved up to said, okay, I now want to learn on service design because I'm sick of implementing crappy concepts from other people where I have a hard time to roll that out. So I'd rather go upstream, be part of the design process and make sure that we have an easy time implementing that. I would suggest to talk to Jürgen Tange from uh, from Belgium about that. Okay, I'll put a, a link to Jürgen and maybe I'll reach out to him. So Mark, just say we've we've gone through the, the methods and we've gone through the awareness and, and people are, are doing the, uh, the ceremonies and sharing the great work that they're doing in the research and their prototyping. What does success look like for an organization that you've seen? Like, and how do businesses know that they're doing it well? It, of course, depends on, on the scale level you're looking at that. What, what does success mean for on a project level? Or what does success mean when you try to implement service design into an organization? For the latter, I think when I see an organization, I see 
certain stuff happening there, I think they are successful. One of that is how do they measure their CX performance? So do they do that at all? So is customer experience part of, of their performance review, for example? Is it part of bonuses they get? Is it part of, of the set of KPIs they're measured against? Some organizations are just introducing NPS and some are really, really driven by NPS and they, they have quantitative driver models behind their, their NPS score, trying to understand what, what drives it and all that. It's very, all very quantitative. But often the problem there is that it's all set up still in silos. So even though you have any kind of customer experience KPI in your performance set, it might be that they are set up per silo. Yeah. What you should achieve is actually a score crossing different silos, rather defined by certain events, for example. So events the customer goes through and, and then understand, okay, which different departments are involved to make this event a great one. And then having KPIs which cross the departments in it, which forces people to cooperate with departments because they only can increase their scores by cooperation with other departments. Which is the goal, which is the total goal of what we're trying to do, really. Exactly, so, yeah. Is force that so as long as the organization is set up just across NPS and they measure it by channel and all that, it's not enough because it's so quantitative and so siloed often that it actually does the opposite. People only try to focus based on their driver model. What is the most influencing factor and how can we do that? And then might be in the end just advertisement. Fair enough. But that doesn't really help to improve the experience of the user. So having these cross-silo KPIs is, is I think, what, what I would see as a success. A second indicator for success is how does an organization across different hierarchy levels value qualitative research in contrast to quantitative research? Mm. We're all good with numbers and we're all good with qualifying quantity, So, which, which means we're trying to interpret quantitative research, which is as wrong as quantifying qualitative research, right? Because as soon as you do that, you put in your own assumptions. Yeah. So we need both. We need quant and we need qual. It's not either or, it's always both. Unfortunately, many organizations and more the management, especially the, the middle management, is focusing on quantitative research and quantitative numbers and measuring stuff and not so much interested in qualitative research. But as soon as you reach a certain maturity level, if people really understand the benefit of doing design in their organization, also they will uh, value much more the qualitative part of that. The third indicator I would like to put up here is, um, is actually the value of prototyping. Does the organization value prototyping? Or do they more value, talking again mainly about middle and higher management, do they actually value more shiny PowerPoint presentations than real prototypes? So what people who go to business school, to classic business school, are really, really good at is presenting. I mean, you can put somebody in a room with no clue about a topic and they will have a convincing selling presentation because everything works in PowerPoint land. It's just right there. But it has nothing to do with reality. So some organizations who reach a real maturity level will question if managers present 
concept in terms of shiny PowerPoint presentations. Why did you invest so much time into crafting this beautiful presentation, which took you now a week to set up? Why didn't you invest this week to actually do a prototype and show us that this is working? Yeah. As soon as you reach that, I just say, yeah, all right, we're there. That's great. Yeah, so they're the three things that you, you're looking for, really, in the application of actual embedding of service design into an organization. When you see that, that leads you to believe that it's working. Yeah. yeah. I mean, plus stuff I, I already mentioned earlier, like what's the language, do they work interdisciplinary and all that. But if an organization reach all of that, they're, they're pretty good. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. We're coming into the very last couple of uh, questions here, Mark, and I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to some of the other episodes, but we do three questions at the very end of every episode, and it tries to get to know the speaker a little bit more and a little bit peel back the layers a little bit, show the vulnerability, shall we say. And one of the first questions is, what is the one professional skill that you wish you were better at? It's, it's a very hands-on thing, actually. Um, <laughs> it's sketching. Okay. I'm bad at sketching. I hate myself for that. Who um, said you were bad? Uh, I do it myself. It's, it's good enough to communicate, but I would love to be better. And I know that I could get better if I just invest more time into that, which I did not yet. And I'm, I'm totally aware of that. It's a skill you can learn. Yeah, but I, I didn't yet. I didn't invest enough into that. So this, this is one skill I really want to become better and where I want to focus on in the future. Okay, that's a great one. And it's a very important one as well, I think, for people to be able to visually describe things. Okay, so the second question, Mark, is what is the one thing from the industry that you wish you were able to banish? That's a tough one. Um, if, if I need to put it into one word, I would say silos. But of course, that's, <laughs> of course that's you're going to say silos. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's just oversimplifying a lot because we need them at the same time, right? We need expert language. We need a group of experts in it. But I, I would say it's the arrogance to think that you already know stuff. And that's mainly referring to if, if you do a project for, for users, for customers, for employees, that the first thing is you always need to convince people that they don't know everything about that. Yeah. Because one thing we hear so often is, oh, I know our customers. Yeah, right, you do. How many do really know their customers? How many do really spend time in front line to talk with customers? How many are a customer of their own organization? And yeah, that's something I would like to banish. I would love to, to cut through that and, and say, okay, we all agree we don't know our customers right now. Or what are the motivations behind a certain behavior pattern you see? So let's find out. Excellent. And the third question, and the final question, is what advice would you give to emerging design talent for the future? Mm. Um, good advice I must give. <laughs> I, I think I'd do something rather unpopular. I think design becomes really, really strong on the crossroads with very classic disciplines. So my, my advice for designers is do your design education practice as much as you can, facilitate as much as you can. So be part of the global service jam and so on. But then learn something which is the absolute opposite of that. Mm -hmm. Go into accounting, go into legal, go, go into the stuff you actually don't like 
But this is where you can have a real impact if you are able to speak this language, and not only at the superficial level, but if you really speak this language. I think in, if, if I look into the future and how we spread service design in organizations, especially large organizations like, like multinational governments, so the whole field of public services, this is an, an expertise we really, really need. We're really looking forward to. Yeah, I totally, I really agree with you on the fact that um, being able to speak the language is really important of uh, the people that you're working for. Uh, I'm not too sure if I agree about going into another, uh, doing like a joint degree of accounting and design. I think design is an interesting discipline on its own. So what is it about that you think someone's going to get out of going to do another uh, degree in accounting? Shall we say that they're not going to get out of just working in that space? Well, I think what you get out of that is you really understand a certain way of thinking, which you can't learn just from, or you, you can learn to a certain extent from working with these people. But if you do it yourself, and even more, as soon as you start teaching it to somebody else, then you really understand why you see certain behavior there, which is also really hard for people to phrase. So it's something where people don't know themselves. They're not aware of that. So you can't get it out of, of interviews on observations. It's, it's so deep in there that you really need to, to speak that language to understand it. Absolutely. And, and only through practicing. doesn't mean that you need like another degree. I mean, if you have the time to do a second degree, that's great. It might be good enough to do a course on that or a few courses on that and maybe do an internship there, working there. But the important bit is that you... For a certain amount of time, be it a couple of months, this needs to be your main workload. Yeah. So being an accountant or maybe a legal assistant or whatever. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. It's very good advice. And before we finish, Mark, I know from um, Klaus and, and the guys at More Than Metrics, you're working on a number of things. So maybe tell us a little bit more about uh, where you're at with Smapley and an experience fellow. For anyone who wants to, to learn more, where can they go and what can they do? Yeah, so um, Smapley is, our, our leading product is definitely Smapley because um, Smapley is a software to do journey mapping, persona, system mappings. Um, Stakeholder mapping as well? Yes, and, and it's definitely our, our leading product. Experience Fellow is much smaller. So Experience Fellow is a, it's a research software to do mobile ethnography where real customers, real employees can enter data, kind of a diary study on the phone, and you see the data, then visualize that journey map. What I learned over the years is that Smapity is much more accessible because many organizations start with doing assumption-based journey mapping. Mm-hmm. Of that works with Smapity, that does not work at all with Experience Fellow. And even though I always say base your customer journey on data, that is how people start, right? You first need to learn how it works. So you need to work with assumptions. And then over time, at some point, you realize, oh, shoot, where, where I actually do get the data from. In Smapley, we focus a lot on the persona. So there will be a new uh, persona editor um, rather soon. Yeah. And um, then we're going to um, also improve the, the stakeholder map editor because uh, we didn't work on that for, well, almost two years now. Yeah. But then the big things we, we are working on is actually uh, anything related to the management of, of multiple journey maps. Mm. So how can we embed the different zoom levels of journey maps? So I always like to compare journey map with the geographical map. 
where geographical map can have different zoom levels, like mm. a map of the world, a map of Europe, a map of Austria, a map of Innsbruck. And the smaller the scale gets, the more details also appear on the map. So at some point you will see street names popping up. Yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> if you want to drive from A to B, so if I want to drive from, let's say, Innsbruck to Paris, I need both a map with a large scale to understand what's the big direction I need to go here. Yeah. But then I need more details map at, at crossroads, for example, or then at the destination cities so I know exactly where's the street I need to go in. Yeah. And currently organizations struggle with these different zoom levels. And the only way to, to get over that is by standardizing the tools and keeping your methods flexible. Yeah. And that's what we want to focus on. So our aim is that organizations can use Smapply for any kind of journey mapping in their, in their organization and that all the different projects can be tied together into, well, kind of different Zoom levels of a landscape. Yeah, no, that would be really, really helpful. I know from using Smapply for a number of years, there's real opportunities there to understand the context of the Zoomed out and the, the sort of inherited data sets across the two, um, like or three or four or whatever, how many maps you've got, will be really, really powerful for an organization to help drive that change. Mark, we've come to the end of the episode. Um, thanks so much for your time. I know it's really early, early in the morning for you and it's late-ish in the evening for me, but thanks so much for your time. It was really, really great. Well, thank you for having me. That was great. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you'd like to be part of the conversation or community, hop on over to thisishcd.com where you can request to join the Slack channel and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world. Thanks for listening and see you next time.